17. Hick they called antitoxin meaning, against poison. Then came the idea that if they could only get enough of this antitoxin, and inject it into the blood of a child who had diphtheria, it might cure the disease. A guinea pig is such a tiny animal that the amount of antitoxin which it could form would be far too small to cure a man, or even a child. So larger animals were taken, and it was finally found that the largest and strongest of our domestic animals, the horse, would, if the diphtheria germs were injected into its blood, make such large amounts of antitoxin that merely by drawing a quart or two of the blood and closing up the vein again enough antitoxin could be got to cure 50 or 100 children of diphtheria. This treatment has not the slightest harmful effect upon the horse. The pain of injecting is only like sticking a pin through the skin, while the pain of bleeding is no greater than cutting your finger. There are now at our great manufacturing laboratories whole stables full of horses, for the production of this wonderful remedy. Illustration, death rate from diphtheria and croup statistics from the city of New York. Antitoxin was used largely from 1893-95 during which time there was a steady decrease from 60 to 30 in the death rate, after the Board of Health took up the matter, furnishing antitoxin without cost. The death rate continued to decrease to a less than 10 of the total number of cases. In 1909, with this remedy, our entire feeling toward diphtheria is changed. Instead of dreading it above all things, we know now, from hundreds of thousands of cures, that, if a case is seen on the first day of the disease, and this antitoxin injected with a hypodermic needle, it is almost certain that the patient will recover, not more than two or three cases out of a hundred will fail, if the case is seen and treated on the second day, all but four or five out of a hundred will recover, and if on the third day, all but ten, in fact, the average death rate of diphtheria has been cut down now from 45% to about 6%, we now have antitoxins, or vaccines, for blood poisoning, for typhoid fever, for one of the forms of rheumatism, for boils, for the terrible cerebrospinal meningitis, or spotted fever, and for tetanus, or lockjaw, and every year there are one or two other diseases added to the list of those that have been conquered in this way. None of these vaccines is so powerful, or so certain in its effects, as the diphtheria antitoxin, but they are very helpful already, and some of them, particularly the typhoid vaccine are of great value in preventing the attack of the disease, as small doses of it given to persons who have been exposed to the infection, or are obliged to drink infected water, as in traveling or in war, very greatly lessen their chances of catching the disease. Vaccination, the great cure for smallpox, another valuable means of preventing disease by means of its germs is by putting very small doses of the germs into a patient's body, so that they will give him a very mild attack of the disease and cause the production in his blood of such large amounts of antitoxin that he will no longer be liable to an attack of the violent, or dangerous, form of the disease. Vaccines, for this purpose, usually consist either of a very small number of the disease germs, or of a group of them, which have been made to grow upon a very poor soil or have been chilled or heated so as to destroy their vitality or kill them outright. When these dead, or half-dead, bacilli are injected into the system, they stir up the body to produce promptly large amounts of its antitoxin. In some cases the reaction is so prompt and so vigorous that the antitoxin is produced almost without any discomfort, or disturbance, and the patient scarcely knows anything about it. In others there will be a slight degree of feverishness, with perhaps a little headache, and a few days, or hours, of discomfort. When this has passed, 
then the individual is protected against that disease for a period varying from a few months to as long as seven or eight years, or even for life. The best known and oldest illustration of the use of these vaccines is that of smallpox. A little more than a hundred years ago, an English country doctor by the name of Jenner discovered that the cows in his district suffered from a disease accompanied by irritation upon their skins and udders, which was known as cowpox. The dairymaids who milked these cows caught this disease, which was exceedingly mild and was all over within four or five days, but after that the maids would not take smallpox, or, as we say, were immune against it. Smallpox at that time was as common as measles is now. Nearly one-fourth of the whole population of Europe was pockmarked, and over half the inmates in the blind asylums had been made blind by smallpox. So common was it that it was quite customary to take the infectious matter from the pox upon the skin of a mild case and inoculate children with it, so as to give them the disease in mild form and thus protect them against a severe, or fatal, attack, just as in country districts. A few years ago, some parents would expose their children to measles when it happened to be a mild form, so as to have it over with. It occurred to Dr. Jenner that if this inoculation with cowpox would protect these milkmaids, it would be an infinitely safer thing to use to protect children than even the mildest known form of inoculation. So he tried it upon two or three of his child patients, after explaining the situation to their parents, and was perfectly delighted when, a few months afterward, these children happened to be exposed to a severe case of smallpox and entirely escaped catching the disease. This was the beginning of what we now call vaccination, the germ of cowpox which is believed to be either the cow or horse variety of human smallpox, is cultivated upon healthy calves. The matter formed upon their skin is collected with the greatest care, and this is rubbed, or scraped, into the arm of the child. It is a perfectly safe and harmless cure, and although it has been done millions of times, never has there been more than one death from it in 10.000 cases. In a little over a hundred years it has reduced smallpox from the commonest and most fatal of all diseases to a one of the rarest, but in every country in the world into which vaccination has not been introduced, smallpox rages as commonly and as fatally as ever. For instance, between 1893 and 1898 in Russia, where a large share of the people are unvaccinated, 275.000 deaths occurred from smallpox, in Spain, where the same condition exists. 24.000, in Germany, on the other hand, where vaccination is practically universal, there were in the same period only 287 deaths when 1,000 as many as in Russia, and in England, only a slightly greater number, another illustration, which comes closer home, is that of the Philippine Islands, before they were annexed by the United States, vaccination was rare, and thousands of deaths from smallpox occurred every year, in 1897. After the people had been thoroughly vaccinated, there was not a single death from this cause in the whole of the islands. Illustration, Bill of Health No Outgoing Ship May Clear the Port Without a Bill of Health, signed by the Collector of Customs and the Naval Officer of the Port. This discovery of Jenner's was most fortunate, for vaccination remains until this day absolutely the only remedy of any value whatever that we possess against smallpox, quarantine, inoculation, improvement of living and sanitary conditions. The use of drugs and medicines of all sorts other than vaccination, had no effect whatever upon either the spread or the fatality of the disease. The author, when state health officer of Oregon, saw the disease break out in a highly civilized, well-fed, well-housed community, and kill 11 out of 33 people attacked, 
just as it would have done in the Dark Ages. Not one of the cases that died had been vaccinated, and, with but one exception and in this the proof of vaccination was imperfect. Every vaccinated case recovered. Vaccination will usually protect for from 5 to 10 years, then it is advisable to be re-vaccinated, and in 6 to 8 years more, another vaccination should be attempted. This third vaccination will usually not take, for the reason that two successful vaccinations will usually protect for life, and expected as it may seem. Vaccination is not only a preventive of smallpox, but a cure for it, the reason being that vaccinia, the disease resulting from successful vaccination, being far milder than smallpox, runs its course more quickly, taking only two days to develop, while smallpox requires anywhere from 7 to 20 days to develop after the patient has been infected, or exposed, so, if anyone who has been exposed to smallpox is vaccinated any time within a week after exposure, the vaccine will take hold first, and the patient will have either simple vaccinia, with its trifling headache and fever, or else a very mild form of smallpox. Some persons object to having children deliberately infected with even the mildest sort of disease, but this is infinitely better than to allow, as was the case before vaccination, from one-fourth to one-fifth of them to be killed, 25% of them to be pockmarked, and 10% of them to be blinded by this terrible disease. So far as any after-effects of vaccination are concerned, careful investigation of hundreds of thousands of cases has clearly shown that it is not so dangerous as a common cold in the head. Infantile paralysis, another disease that has been unpleasantly famous of late is also caused and spread by a germ. This is a form of laming or crippling of certain muscles in childhood known as infantile paralysis. It is not a common disease, though during the last two years there has been an epidemic of it in the United States especially in New York and Massachusetts. The only things of importance for you to know about it are that it begins, like the other infections, with headache, fever, and usually with snuffles or slight sore throat, or an attack of indigestion, and that its germ is probably spread by being sneezed or coughed into the air from the noses and throats of the children who have it, and breathed in by well children. The best known preventive of serious results from this disease is the same as in the rest of infectious diseases. Namely, rest in bed, away from all other children, which at the same time stops the spread of it. It furnishes one more reason why all children having the snuffles and sore throat with fever and headache should be kept away from school and promptly put to bed and kept there until they are better. The reason why the disease produces paralysis is that its germs specially attack the spinal cord, so as to destroy the roots of the nerves going to the muscles, unless the harm done to the spinal cord is very severe. Other muscles of the arm or the leg can very often be trained to take the place and to do the work of the paralyzed muscles, so that while the limb will not be so strong as before, it will still be quite full. Malaria, practically the only disease due to animal germs, which is sufficiently common in temperate or even subtropical regions to be of interest to us, is malaria, better known perhaps as ague, or chills and fever. This disease has always been associated with swamps and damp marshy places and the fogs and mists that rise from them, indeed its name, Maloria, is simply the Italian words for bad air. It is commonest in country districts as compared with towns, in the south as compared with the north, and on the frontier, and usually almost disappears when all the ponds and swamps in a district are drained and turned into cultivated land or meadows, about 400 years ago. The Spanish conquerors of America were fortunate enough to discover that the natives of Peru had a bitter, reddish bark, which, 
when powdered or made into a strong tea, would cure ague. This, known first as Peruvian bark, was introduced into Europe by the intelligent and far-sighted Spanish Countess of Chincon, and, as she richly deserved, her name became attached to it first softened to Cincona and later hardened to the now famous Quinine. But for this drug, the settlement of much of America would have been impossible. The climate of the whole of the Mississippi Valley and of the South would have been fatal to a white man without its aid. Illustration, germs of malaria greatly magnified. These germs are animal germs and are in the red blood corpuscles, feeding on them. But although we knew that we could both break up and prevent malaria by doses of quinine large enough to make the head ring, we knew nothing about the cause save that it was always associated with swamps and marshy places until about 40 years ago a French army surgeon, Laverin, discovered in the red corpuscles of the blood of malaria patients, a little animal germ, which has since borne his name, this, being an animal germ, naturally would not grow or live like a plant germ and must have been carried into the human body by the bite of some other animal, the only animals that bite us often enough to transmit such a disease are insects of different sorts, and, as biting insects are commonly found flying around swamps, suspicion very quickly settled upon the mosquito, by a brilliant series of investigations by French, Italian, English, and American scientists, the malaria germ was discovered in the body of the mosquito, and was transmitted by its bite to birds and animals. Then a score or more of eager students and doctors in different parts of the world offered themselves for experiment allowed themselves to be bitten by infected mosquitoes, and within ten days developed malaria. At first sight, this discovery was not very encouraging for to exterminate mosquitoes appeared to be as hopeful a task as to sweep back the Atlantic tides with a broom, but luckily it was soon found that the common piping, or singing, mosquito called from his voice Culex pipiens could not carry the disease, but only one rather rare kind of mosquito the Anopheles, which is found only one fiftieth as commonly as the ordinary mosquito, it was further found that these malaria-bearing mosquitoes could breed only in small puddles, or pools, that were either permanent or present six months out of the year, and that did not communicate with, or drain into, any stream through which fish could enter them. Fish are a deadly enemy of the mosquito and devour him in the stage between the egg and the growth of his wings, when he lives in water as a little whitish worm, such as you may have seen wriggling in a rain barrel. It was found that by hunting out a dozen or twenty little pools of this sort in the neighborhood of a town full of malaria, and filling them up, or draining them, or pouring kerosene over the surface of the water, the spread of the malaria in the town could be stopped and wiped out absolutely. This has been accomplished even in such frightfully malarial districts as the Panama Canal Zone, and the west coast of Africa, whose famous jungle fever has prevented white men from getting a foothold upon it for 1500 years, since the young mosquitoes, in the form of wrigglers, or larvae, cannot grow except in still water, draining the pools kills them, and, as they must come to the surface of the water to breathe, pouring crude petroleum over the water the oil floating on the surface and making a film chokes them. The common garden mosquito, while not dangerous, is decidedly a nuisance and can be exterminated in the same way by draining the swamps and pools, or by flooding them with crude petroleum, or by draining swamps or pools into freshwater ponds and then putting minnows or other fish into these ponds. There is no reason why any community calling itself civilized should submit to be tormented by mosquitoes if it will spend the few hundred, or the thousand, dollars necessary to wipe them out. It is prophesied that the use of quinine will soon become as rare as it is now common. 
because malaria will be wiped out by the prevention of the mosquito. Disinfectants. So far we have been considering how to attack the germs after they have got into our bodies, or to prevent them from spreading from one patient to another, but there is still another way in which they may be attacked, and that is by killing, or poisoning them, outside the body. This process is generally known as disinfection, and is carried out either by baking, boiling, or steaming, or by the use of strongly poisonous fluids or gases, known as disinfectants. While fortunately none of these disease germs can breed, or reproduce their kind, outside the human body, and while comparatively few of them live very long outside the human body, they may, if mixed with food or caught upon clothing, hangings, walls, or floors, remain in a sort of torpid, but still infectious, condition for weeks or even months. Consequently, it has become the custom to take all the bedding, clothing, carpets, curtains, etc. that have touched a patient suffering from a contagious disease, or have been in the room with him, and also any books that he may have handled, any pens or pencils that he may have used, and either destroy them, or bake, boil, or fumigate them with some strong germicidal, or disinfectant, vapor, illustration, oiling a breeding ground of mosquitoes the photograph shows work done in the Panama Canal zone, the swamp has already been drained by ditches, and the work of destroying the larvae is being completed by the use of oil. This is usually done by closing up tightly the sick room, putting into it all clothing, bedding, pictures, books, hangings, and other articles used during the illness except wash goods, which, of course, can be sterilized by thorough boiling, and dishes and table utensils, which also can be scalded and boiled, draping the carpet over chairs so as to expose it on all sides, opening closets and drawers and then filling the room full of some strong germ-destroying fumes, one of the best disinfectants, and the one now most commonly used by boards of health for this purpose, is formaldehyde pungent, irritating gas, which is an exceedingly powerful germ-destroyer. This, for convenience in handling is usually dissolved, or forced into a water, which takes up about half its bulk, and the solution is then known as formalin. When formalin is poured into an open dish, it rapidly evaporates or gives up its gas, and, if it be gently heated, this will be thrown off in such quantities as to completely fill the room and penetrate every crevice of it, and every fold of the clothing or hangings, one pound, or pint, of formalin will furnish vapor enough to disinfect a room eight feet square and eight feet high, so the amount for a given room can thus be calculated, the formalin vapor will attack germs much more vigorously and certainly if it be mixed with water vapor, or steam, so it is usually best either to boil a large kettle of water in the room for half an hour or more, so as to fill the air with steam, before putting in the formalin, or to use a combination evaporator with a lamp underneath it, which will give off both formalin and steam. This, if lighted and placed on a dish in the center of a wash tub or a large dishpan, with two or three inches of water in the bottom of it, can be put into the room and left burning until it goes out of its own accord. Another very good method is to take a pan, or basin, with the required amount of formalin not more than an inch or two inches deep in the bottom of it, get everything ready with doors and windows fastened tight and strips of paper pasted across the cracks, pour quickly over the formalin some permanganate of potash about a quarter of a pound to each pound of formalin, and then bolt for the door as quickly as possible to avoid suffocation, the resulting boiling up, or effervescence will throw off quantities of formaldehyde gas so quickly as to drive it into every cranny and completely through clothing, bedding, 
etc. The room should be left closed up tightly for from 12 to 36 hours. When it can be opened only be careful how you go into it. First sniffing two or three times to be sure that all the gas has leaked out. Or holding your breath till you can get the windows open, and in a few hours the room will be ready for use again. Another older and much less expensive disinfectant for this purpose is common sulfur. From one to three pounds of this, according to the size of the room, is burned by a specially prepared lamp in a pan placed in the center of a dishpan of water, and the vapor thus made is a very powerful disinfectant. This, however, is a very poisonous and suffocating gas as you will remember if you had ever strangled on the fumes of an old-fashioned sulfur match and, compared with formalin, is nearly five times as poisonous to human beings, or animals, and not half so much so to the germs, where formalin cannot be secured. Sulfur is very effective, but its only merit compared with formalin is that it is cheaper, and more destructive to animal parasites and vermin such as bugs, cockroaches, mice, rats, etc. When these happen to be present, formalin has the additional advantage of not tarnishing metal surfaces, as sulfur does. It is a good thing for every household and every schoolroom to have a bottle of formalin on hand, so that you may sniff the vapor of it into your nostrils and throat if you think you have been exposed to a cold, or other infectious disease, or make a solution with which to wash your hands, handkerchiefs, pencils, etc. After touching any dirt likely to contain infection, half a teaspoonful in a bowl of water is enough for this. A saucer full of it placed in an airtight box, or cabinet will make a disinfecting chamber in which pencils, books, etc. can be placed overnight, and a teaspoonful of it in a quart of water will make an actively germ-destroying solution, which can be used to soak clothing, clean out bedroom utensils, or pour down sinks, toilets, or drains. It is a good thing also to pour a few teaspoonfuls occasionally on the floor of the closets in which your shoes, trousers, dresses, and other outdoor clothing are kept as these are quite likely to be contaminated by germs from the dust and dirt of the streets. Formalin is one of the best and safest general disinfectants to use. Its advantages are, that it is nearly ten times as powerful a germicide as carbolic acid, or even corrosive sublimate, so that it may be used in a solution so weak as to be practically non-poisonous to human beings. It is so violently irritating to lips, tongue, and nostrils as to make it almost impossible for even a child to swallow it while the amount that would be absorbed if taken into the mouth and spit out again would be practically harmless, so far as danger to a life is concerned, though it would blister the lips and tongue. Bacteria, our best friends, while, naturally, the bacteria that do us harm by producing disease are the ones that have attracted our keenest attention and that we talk about most, it must never be forgotten that they form only a very, very small part of the total number of bacteria, or germs. These tiny little germs swarm everywhere, and the mere fact that we find bacteria in any place, or in any substance, is no proof whatever that we are in danger of catching some disease there. All our farm and garden soil, for instance, is full of bacteria that not only are harmless, but give that soil all its richness, or fertility. If you were to take a shovelful of rich garden earth and bake it in an oven, so as to destroy absolutely all bacteria in it, you would have spoiled it so that seeds would scarcely grow in it, and it would not produce a good crop of anything. These little bacteria, sometimes called the soil bacteria, or bacteria of decay, swarm in all kinds of dead vegetable and animal matter, such as leaves, roots, fruits, bodies of animals, fishes, and insects. 
and cause them to decay or break down and melt away. In doing this they produce waste substances, particularly those that contain ammonia, or nitrates, or some other form of nitrogen, which are necessary for the growth of plants or crops. This is why soil can be made richer by scattering over it and plowing into it manure, waste from slaughterhouses, or any other kind of decaying animal or vegetable matter. This is promptly attacked by the bacteria of the soil and turned into these easily soluble plant foods. The roots of the plants grown in the soil could no more take this food directly from dead leaves or manure than you could live on sawdust or coconut matting. So, if it were not for these bacteria, or lower plants, there could be no higher, or green, plants, as animals live either upon these green plants, such as grass and grains, or upon the flesh of other animals that live upon plants. We can see that without the bacteria there would be no animal life, not even man, no bacteria, no higher life. It would be safe to say that, out of every million bacteria in existence, at least 999.999 are not only not harmful but helpful to us. One large group of bacteria produces the well-known souring of milk, and while this in itself is not especially desirable, yet the milk is still wholesome and practically harmless and its sourness prevents the growth of a large number of other bacteria whose growth would quickly make it dangerous and poisonous. Many races living in hot countries deliberately sour all the milk directly after milking, by putting sour milk into it, because, when soured, it will keep fairly wholesome for several days, while if not soured it would entirely spoil and become unusable within 24 hours. Another group of bacteria, which float about in the air almost everywhere, are the yeasts which we harness to our use for the very wholesome and healthful process of bread making. Millions upon millions of bacteria of different sorts live and grow naturally in our stomachs and intestines, and while they are probably of no special advantage to us, yet at the same time the majority of them are practically, within reasonable limits not to exceed a few billions or so harmless. Insect pests. One kind of dirt that should be avoided with special care is insects of all sorts. No one needs to be told to try to keep a house, or a room, clear of fleas, bed bugs, or lice. Indeed to have these creatures about is considered a mortal disgrace. Not only is their bite very unpleasant, but they may convey a variety of diseases, including plague and blood poisonings of various sorts. But there is another insect pest far commoner and far more dangerous than either fleas or bed bugs, whose presence we should feel equally ashamed of, and that is the common house fly. This filthy little insect breeds in and feeds upon filth, manure, garbage, and dirt of all sorts, and then comes and crawls over our food, falls into our milk, wipes his feet on our sugar and cake, crawls over the baby's face, and makes a general nuisance of himself. Take almost any fly that you can catch. Let him crawl over a culture plate of gelatin. Put that gelatin away in a warm place, and you will find a perfect flower garden of germs growing up all over it following the pattern made by the tracks of his dirty feet. In this garden will be found not silver bills and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row, but a choice mixture of typhoid bacilli, us germs, the germs of putrefaction, tubercle bacilli, and the little seeds which, if planted in our own bodies, would blossom as pneumonia or diphtheria. The fly is an unmitigated nuisance and should be wiped out. No halfway measures should be considered. Fortunately, this is perfectly possible for his presence is our own fault and nothing else, as he can lay his eggs and hatch only in piles of dirt and filth found about our own houses, barns, and outbuildings, 
He is not a wild insect but a domestic one and is practically never found more than a few hundred yards away from some house or barnyard. His favorite place for breeding is in piles of stable manure, especially horse manure, but neglected garbage cans, refuse heaps, piles of dirt and sweepings, decaying matter of all sorts, which are allowed to remain for more than 10 days or 2 weeks at a time, will give him the breeding grounds that he needs. It takes him about two weeks to hatch and get away from these breeding places, so that if everything of the sort is cleaned up carefully once a week, or if, where manure heaps and garbage dumps have to remain for longer periods, they are sprinkled with arsenic, kerosene, corrosive sublimate, chloride of lime, or carbolic acid, he will perish and disappear as surely as grass will if you wash away the soil in which it grows. The presence of a fly means a dirty house or a dirty yard somewhere and to discover a fly in your house should be considered a disgrace, until people are aroused to the need of such cleanliness as will make flies disappear entirely. In most places it will be necessary, as warm weather approaches, to screen all doors and windows, and particularly all boxes, pantries, or refrigerators in which food is kept. If you cannot afford screens, use fly paper. These are all, however, only halfway measures and will give only partial relief. The best prevention of flies is absolute cleanliness. No dirt. No flies. Dust. A source of danger. Dust is an easily recognized form of dirt. It is dangerous in itself and nearly always contains germs of one sort or another mixed in with it. Shops and factories whose processes make much dust are usually very unhealthy for the workers, who are likely to show a high death rate from consumption. Dust should be fought and avoided in every possible way. City streets should have good modern pavements, preferably asphalt or some crude petroleum, or sawmill waste, crust, or coating, which will not make any dust, and which can be washed down every night with a hose. In smaller towns where there is no pavement, dust may be prevented by regular sprinklings during the summer, preferably with some form of crude oil. Two or three full sprinklings of this will keep down the dust for the greater part of the summer, if these measures are properly carried out. They will prevent most of the dust that accumulates in houses, as nearly all of this blows in through the windows or is carried in on shoes or skirts. When this has once floated in and settled down upon the walls, furniture, or carpets, be very careful how you disturb it, for, as long as it lies there, it will do you no harm. However untidy it may look, the broom and the feather duster and the dry cloth do almost as much harm as they do good, for while they may remove two-thirds of the dust from a room, They drive the other third right into your nose and throat, where the germs it contains can do the most possible harm. Dusting should always be done with a damp cloth, sweeping, with a damp cloth tie. 